0: Hey guys, we're back with another episode of 1600 Penn, the DP's podcast about politics and campus life. This episode, we're going to be talking about something that's pretty important to me personally. When I was around 10, I watched the movie The Inconvenient Truth. I remember Al Gore riding a cherry picker as he explained how absolutely terrifying climate change is. That was sort of when it hit me. This is a big problem, and it's going to affect all of us. When I got to Penn, I really wanted to join some kind of environmentally focused club, so, during my freshman and sophomore years, I was a part of College House Ego Reps. That's a program run through Penn-Green Campus Partnership, where we basically organized events and projects to make the dorms more sustainable. My freshman year, I also helped organize the Power Down Challenge, a period of time during February when the entire campus tries to cut down on its energy usage. On the first morning of the Power Down Challenge freshman year, I went to go do my laundry in the basement of the quad. When I walked in, somebody had turned off all the lights, and it was just this peaceful sound of washers and dryers. And I stopped and realized that it wasn't just me or the people in my club who cared. A lot of people cared. We did something that made other people care, and that felt really good. But now that Donald Trump is president, a lot of people who care about the environment are really concerned. Trump himself called climate change a Chinese hoax, and right after his inauguration, the page on the White House website dedicated to climate change issues disappeared. Scott Pruitt, who Trump picked to run the Environmental Protection Agency, wants to roll back a lot of the climate-related regulations that Obama introduced scientists are so worried that they've already started the process of preserving environmental data they think is in danger. For environmental activists at Penn, all of this is really discouraging. Not just because it's scary to see the president ignoring the costs they care about, but also because it's thrown their own plans into confusion. I would say as soon
1: as Trump was elected, definitely a sense of fear. For, on a personal level, a sense of Well, I don't want to work for the government now when that was kind of my plan a was to graduate work for the government probably not the epa but the forest service or the national park service and that's definitely still on my radar it's just i don't i don't want to be in a position in, in the government and have to do something that i fundamentally disagree with
0: that's rebecca composto a junior in the college studying environmental science i met rebecca back when we were both eco reps She's one of the most passionate environmental activists I know, and she's pretty concerned about the next four years. Actually, politics was sort of what got her into environmentalism in the first place.
1: Well, I think maybe fifth grade, uh, I heard somebody speak, and he was a New York legislator, and I'm from Pennsylvania, and this, uh, this dude was talking about um, fracking and how In New York, they just banned it, they said, listen, we don't want to do anything with it, it just seems really dirty, and obviously we've seen how it's been affecting Pennsylvania, and we don't want to be like Pennsylvania. And I was in the audience thinking, I'm from Pennsylvania, why are you using us as this bad example, that seems really unfair, that we have to go through all these mistakes and leaks and such, and that New York kind of, just because they have smarter legislators, they don't really have the same consequences. So that's kind of when I first realized how maybe unfair and how fragile um, our resources were. And then later on, I kind of developed uh, a love for
0: being outside, and so that kind of strengthened my um, desire to protect the outdoors. Besides eco-reps, Rebecca's been pretty involved in trying to make Penn more sustainable. One cool thing she worked on was bringing bees to campus. But as it turned out, something as simple as putting a beehive on campus turned out to be really difficult. And that kind of showed how hard it is to make big changes at Penn. I would say something that I expected to be
1: pretty easy was when me and Donica Fine and Lucas Bolno, the three of us, applied for a Green Fund grant, which is given out through Green Campus Partnership. And we applied to get bees on campus, like a few hives. And I kind of expected we'll apply for this grant, we'll get some money, we'll be set up in no time. But then because Penn is a large urban campus, it is very protect, Penn is very protective of its image and all of that, it became a very long year and a half process of picking a location where the bees could go and have the least amount of stuff go wrong. Um, So that was definitely a learning experience for me to kind of appreciate the journey of getting something done and not get to just keep motivation even when it feels like maybe it'll take longer than expected.
0: Rebecca's experience showed her that working with the Penn administration can be really difficult and she's not the only one. Trying to make change at a school as enormous as Penn by working within the system is just a lot of work and for some environmental activists it isn't worth it anymore. Gavi Ryder is a college junior studying earth science who helped start Fossil Free Pen, which is probably the most visible environmental group on campus. Trying to figure out how to work best within the already laid
2: out systems, so the referendums and the open forums and the meetings with trustees, how to work within systems to achieve our goal. Um, And so now we're in this, you get to a place where working within the system, there are no more
0: more outlets anymore, Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where we're at right now. For Fossil Free Penn, pushback from the administration is something they've just gotten used to. Fossil Free has spent almost three years trying to get Penn's trustees to divest from fossil fuel companies. Zach Rissman, a college sophomore who I also met during Eco Reps, joined Fossil Free Penn as soon as he got here.
3: So it actually started, um, I think, in 2014 after the People's Climate March in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a group of people who were kind of, there had been a few uh, divestment um, kind of movements uh, before, um, but none of them really took hold. Um, and then a few of these people who were all at this um, Climate March came together and they um, decided to start this. This was the year before I came to Penn. Um, and then later that year they hosted a referendum um, in which 87.8% uh, of, of voting students voted in favor of divestment. So that was really cool and that was like a really sh- reassuring step that not only what we were doing is important but like we also had support of our students um, and more than a third of the student population voted on that so a significant portion did vote. Um, and then after that, we wrote and submitted a uh, formal proposal to the Penn's administration um, that was like 50 pages long, and it was detailing all the reasons in support of divestment. Um, and then uh, there was a lot of campus um, administration loopholes and red tape that made to jump through and a lot of different processes that we had to go through. Um, and then earlier this year in September, or maybe late August, uh, I think early September, we um, got the word that our proposal was rejected by the Board of Trustees um and uh, that's not while it was hard to hear It was not really discouraging because uh, every successful divestment movement has encountered at least one or two projections um, if not more than that before um, actually the school will move to divestment so it was like a predicted step Um, and then we hosted a seven-hour sit-in in in college hall in early november Um, that was pretty cool because we got a meeting with both President Gutman um, and the head of the board of trustees, David Cohen, um, and got to really talk to them one on, or not one on one, but uh, in person about uh, the process and kind of the next possible steps.
0: That sit-in happened in November, just two days after the election. Dozens of students participated, and Gavi thinks that that kind of presence forced the administration to meet with them. But it wasn't easy getting there. This year we did
2: a in and um, it was really a wild time.
0: I like. I did not
2: expect there to be police there so fast, but they were there within 20 minutes. Um, really? We're like, we're just going <laughs> to sit here. Um, yeah, we tried to enter Amy yeah. Utman's, like, sitting room, room mm-hmm. like, the lounge outside of her office, yeah. and the security guard was, like, physically trying to remove us. I'm um, sort of like, you know what, we're going to, we'll just sit outside the, we'll sit outside the office, it'll be great, like, people can see us, we'll sit in the hall. I don't know if you saw us. Um, yeah. And... They put the building on lockdown and called the Philadelphia police, not the Penn police. And so the three police officers came and they just like stood there. And we just sat there and just like told our stories. We each told out, talked about how we got involved and why we were sitting in today. Um, Did some climate calisthenics and stretching. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) And um, it was just really wild, the the reaction so fast. But they probably only stayed for like an hour and a half. Um, and then the vice presidents and the and people like of the Open Exception mm-hmm. um, crew from Open Exception came um, and invited us to come to their
0: office and talk to them. Even though Fossil Free did get to meet with some top-level administrators, they didn't feel like much came from their meeting. Zach pointed out that the last time the trustees agreed to divest, it took seven years of convincing. That was when they divested from companies doing business in apartheid South Africa. Zach said working with the administration can be really frustrating, and all of bureaucracy made things more complicated than they needed to be.
3: Yeah, so it was first really confusing, um, and one of the things that we didn't like about the process was the lack of transparency.
0: The process was definitely a long one. After the UA held a referendum where the entire student body could vote on whether to recommend divestment, 87% of students voted yes. The trustees then convened a year-long committee but decided at the end not to divest.
3: So it was really confusing because none of us really expected it. And also, it was a little disheartening, um, not just because of the actual answer, but because we all really got the feeling that um, our proposal was not taken extremely seriously. Um, they did not re- uh, rebut any of our main points. Um, as I said before, all they said was that they didn't think the, um, it was a moral evil on par with apartheid or genocide, and that was the only reason they gave in response to our 50-page proposal that had you know endless reasons on, you know, why divestment is a great idea, both morally and also financially. So uh, it was a little disheartening because we really felt like they didn't even read it. You know, they just said, oh, divestment, no, and like just moved on. And so we were not happy about that.
0: But Fossil Free isn't giving up anytime soon. Now that Trump is president, environmental activists have a really important role to play. Zach thinks that role is even more important because Trump went to Penn.
3: We're definitely going to um, really think about how to like expand our reach more and more this semester especially. Um, Really uh, digging deeply into student groups and faculty and alumni and the graduate um, students and to get really to rally everyone together because especially now um, in the Trump era we can't really count on the government to make logical decisions for the environment anymore. When our own president has called climate change you know a hoax invented by the Chinese it's not really um, it doesn't really give me a lot of faith that you know even if we don't succeed ourselves somebody else will take care of it that's really not the case anymore so it's really i think um, extremely important now more than ever for private institutions to really make a statement and Penn really has a political privilege to in the fact that we are trumps alma mater and in the fact that we're a you know very significant university with a significant endowment And i think that to let that slip by is um... immoral and you know not saying anything is still making a statement so i think that um, you know it's so important that we really do succeed because, you know, I'm not doing this for me. You know, I'm doing this for everyone who can't do this themselves. Because, the sad thing is, you know, those who can't really make statements themselves are those who uh, will be most affected by climate change. So, um, I think we're still thinking about exactly what um, tactics we're going to use, but the overall goal is really just getting overwhelming support from everyone um, to show unequivocally that this is the right move.
0: Fossil-Free pen is probably known best for flashy, dramatic protests that get lots of attention. But not every environmental group works that way. EcoReps, which was run through the administration, was much more focused on making small changes to try to get students to live a more sustainable life. In terms of actually making change, both kinds of organizations are important. Setting up beehives on campus definitely didn't get the same kind of attention that the divestment referendum did, but Rebecca still feels like she made a lot of progress.
1: Something that comforts me if I'm ever feeling small and insignificant is the fact that incrementalism is so important and that kind of like the Bees project that I had, it took a very long time and it was frustrating. Well, it was frustrating at times that it was taking a while. Yeah, it was definitely frustrating that it was taking a while, Um, but that, I mean, maybe next time it'll be easier for a group that wants to expand the Bees Club or that, I mean, Maybe now that there are two hives on campus, someone will want to put them somewhere else, and this is already a prototype for them to put them on
0: the roof of Van Pelt or something like that. Daniel Aldana-Cohen is a professor of sociology at Penn who specializes in climate change activism. He explained to me that both kinds of activism, protesting from the outside and working from the inside, are really important.
4: I think a lot of us who work on social movements, social change, we talk about the inside-outside strategy. You need people yelling. You need people making noise. You need people getting photographed, uh, leading demonstrations, which are often very confrontational and cause a lot of headaches. And that's good. That's really good. And you never get any change without that. At the same time, uh, you need someone on the other side who is able to kind of implement, who's sympathetic, who understands what's going on and who's working. uh, So often it's phrases either either or, like is it about selling out or joining the establishment? I don't think that's such a helpful framework. I think the inside-outside concept really gets you to this idea that you need both insiders inside of institutions who understand how they work and and folks on the outside.
0: Penn students have gotten pretty involved in vocal activism over the last few months from solidarity marches after election day to women's marches a few weeks ago. But usually activism isn't that big at Penn. The atmosphere here as we know is really pre-professional so a lot of people just don't prioritize it. Zach said it's not always easy being in an environment like that.
3: Yeah so I think there's probably a a bunch of factors you know Penn itself is not I mean, of course, it's extremely liberal, but of of the Ivies, it's really not, you know, the most liberal and it's Mm -hmm. not the most. um, Also, you know, Penn kids have a lot on their plates uh, and often, you know, prioritize kind of their own success more than, which is extremely understandable. Um, And maybe it's just because Penn students really haven't found, or a lot of them haven't found what they really care mostly about. And so um, maybe they don't think it's worth it to just go to a few protests that they don't really care about um, when they could better be spending their time doing other things. So, it could be a variety of things, but um, it was a little bit uh, interesting to get used to because I did think coming onto an Ivy League campus, you know, I would just be hit in the face by activism, but um, it was a little less than that.
0: For Gavi, the lack of activism at Penn is something she's been struggling with ever since she got here. She literally went abroad with a program that didn't include other Penn students so she could get the experience she wanted. Yeah, it's definitely been a question. I've, that's definitely an
2: experience I've had to deal with the past four years um, to the point that... I like petitioned a study abroad program that only focused on climate change without any Penn students because I was just like I need to have one semester that I'm doing, I'm learning the most out of I'm learning the most about climate change that I can surrounded by other people who want to have those lessons. Does that make sense? Um, Sophomore year, I hit like I hit some type of rut where I wanted to affect change and maybe work in nonprofits and I felt like many people around me were either pre, a lot of the environmental science courses you take are pre-med courses, Mm -hmm. um, and, like, OCR, people started talking about OCRing, um, and people kind of just being, like, oh, like, you're gonna be fine, like, you, your grades don't even matter, right? Like, you just want to, like, help the world, What? um, and so I, I kind of internalized a lot of of those comments, and, I ended up applying to some matriculate for a master's in nonprofit leadership. Um, at the time I think it was like out of validation that what I'm doing is okay and real and accepted and like I have a path and look I'm in a master's program. It doesn't matter if I'm not OCRing, it doesn't matter if I'm not
0: studying for MCAT. Being an activist is also a social thing. That's why Rebecca helped found Epsilon Ada. I was part of
1: founding group of an environmental fraternity which kind of focuses on bringing I mean it's you You want to have you want to get stuff done and you want to be productive but honestly you can't really be productive if you don't like the people or if you don't know the people you're working with so I guess the goal of Epsilon Ada was to create an environmental community and really solidify kind of a center because something we were a lot of us were feeling freshman year was that we couldn't really necessarily find the other green people or that, you know, we would be part of these groups, but there wasn't a sense of, oh, I want to go to this club's BYO or I really want to and just invest a lot of my time and have a lot of fun with these guys. Now, just, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to just have fun and get to know each other. And so that was the goal of that
0: group. As I was talking to all these people who really care about the environment, there was one thing I kept wondering about. Obviously, for climate change activists, the next four years are going to bring a lot of disappointments. I asked them how they're going to motivate themselves to keep fighting for this cause when the federal government isn't even fighting for it.
4: Climate change can be a really overwhelming issue. It is huge. It is scary. Um, It is very hard for one person to see how they can have an impact on something so big. And the thing to me that is most important in facing this issue, again, is not exactly what you do. But if you can find the internal energy to engage with this issue and then to shut down the guilt and know that there's so many things, you know, little things you can do when getting involved in an organization or working on the technology issues, et cetera, you know, that really does does add up. It's like the piles of, of grains of sand. How many grains does it take to make a pile? You know, at what point does it become a pile? And when enough people get organized on this issue, that does become like a pile. It becomes like a real thing that can change the world. And... I think that the challenge is just to remember that being one person facing this huge challenge doesn't mean that you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. It means you need to find other people, talk about it, think about it, you know, work on this problem. And then you really do start to see the the change. So, you know, don't be discouraged and don't feel guilty. Uh, This is a, you know, this is a problem. You know, the climate chaos is something that can be prevented that we can we can stop. We just have to get started.
0: In a way, the problems Penn activists face trying to get things done under the Penn administration are a lot like the problems that environmental activists everywhere will face during the next four years. That's not to say the Penn administration doesn't care about the environment. They do. But all that energy and strength that motivates Fossil Free Penn to keep pushing for what they want, even though they've been told no, is something that lots of activists are going to need moving forward.
4: Engaging as an activist or as an organizer, uh, really focused on the politics, is a unique way of, of kind of taking on the issue of climate change and really of, of living one's life. And sociologists who work on activism and on organizing do find that there can be a kind of tipping point where people have a transformational experience and they suddenly go from thinking, I am a person in the world who is just being beaten down and I just got to do what I can to get by. And then there is a switch that can happen for the people in the most vulnerable situations. It has nothing to do with privilege. A switch where you say, wait a minute, I'm an actor in the world. I, I can shape the world around me, not by myself, not all alone, but in working with others. And that that shift does happen. And you know, research, for instance, on the Freedom Summer found that white folks from the North who went down South and participated in, in getting out the vote uh, at a time when this involved a huge amount of police violence and repression down South. The people who went on those buses and on those trips had very different lives than other activists who stayed on campus in the North and did not go down South. Now, this isn't an issue of judgment, but you can look at it in terms of the salary differential, the career choices, really, really profound shifts. So there are, let's say, gradations in this. But being politically active and being an activist, being an organizer can really transform your life and it can make you into a different kind of person who feels much more empowered, much more connected to their community. Um, Now, does that have to be about opposition? Does that have to be involving in a winning campaign? I don't think we as sociologists really know. I think we do think that if you spend a significant amount of time and there is some sense that you're really making that commitment, then yeah, it can really change your life. And I think for all of us who have found that we have shifted from being a, a little bit like a sports commentator commentating, commentating on the action below on the field to getting on the field ourselves in some way uh yeah that's a wonderful shift and i think most people wouldn't want to go back
0: thanks for listening to this episode of 1600 pen this episode was hosted and edited by me caroline simon and produced by joyce Varma. special thanks to our interns steven damianos and ari goldfine andrew ellis provided our theme music if you have any comments or questions, shoot us an email at podcasts at the DP.com. Our next episode will be out in two weeks, so stay tuned.